Well, turn with me to Genesis 36. Genesis 36, and as you're finding that, I want to talk about spiritual success. Spiritual success is often invisible, and it sometimes feels as if it'll never bear fruit. And we have examples of this in our own lives. You raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. Sometimes you see results, sometimes you don't. How many tens of thousands, maybe millions of believing parents have left this earth still praying for an unsaved child. Or maybe you're aware that certain fruits of the Holy Spirit are less than stellar in your life. Maybe peace is something you struggle with. Maybe patience, perhaps kindness. And though you're fighting the good fight, it seems like what progress you have made is so minuscule that it's immaterial. That you you say, great, by the time I die, I will have made it 1% toward Christlikeness. Or you know that big weakness in your life. Maybe it's your temper. Maybe it's your sharp tongue. And every time you fail, you wonder if you're being sanctified at all. Will there be a day when I stop committing that sin? Then there's that terrible realization that maybe some relationships will never be restored in this lifetime. That for a variety of reasons, what once was will never be again, at least not in this world. Or in some cases, maybe you have the same complaint as the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And so we have this sense where sometimes it feels like we're just waiting forever for for spiritual success, for something that we've been praying for to happen in our own lives. But compared to what we are waiting for, I think what we wait for is nothing compared to what God has been waiting for. Because you think you've been waiting for a long time. Some 7,000 years ago, God created the heavens and the earth to form for himself a kingdom in which the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, would rule the earth and give glory and honor and worship to him in a society in which man and God live in perfect love and communion But because of the fall of mankind into sin, the kingdom plan would now go into the element of redemption, of getting creation back to God's original design. And so God's plan that mankind would rule and subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply, now this would have to be brought about through a redeemer. And to bring that redeemer, God has covenanted with Abraham that through him a special nation would be formed, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so we wait, and God waits. He's been waiting and waiting. And as we've seen God's kingdom plan of redemption unfolding in Genesis through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now we get to another seemingly inconvenient interruption in the kingdom plan, yet something else to wait for. And it's it's a genealogy that actually feels like a slap in the face to the kingdom plan. Like a a giant diversion, a a giant reminder that spiritual things take forever to develop, and it seems that worldly things develop instantly. And so tonight, as we've been jogging our way through uh, Genesis in our first installment of our entire Pentateuch series, we're going to look at challenges to the kingdom. And these are very much the same challenges that we face as we wait upon the Lord, as we wait for the consummation of our faith, for the Lord to do what he promised to us in Romans 8, 28, 
to work all things together for good for those who love God and they're called according to his purpose. And so as we examine the kingdom, we'll find, I think, a lot of parallels to our own lives as well. So I want to show you some of these challenges to the kingdom, and I think we'll do, we'll do four of them tonight. The first challenge we'll call the challenge of meekness. The challenge of meekness. Humility. Let's get into the story here. After Jacob, the chosen line from whom would come the nation of Israel after he tricked his twin Esau out of his birthright and his blessing, as we saw last time, Esau was intent on murdering Jacob. Many, many years later and the building of family and the building of fortunes later, Jacob and Esau reconciled when their father died. They buried him together in a show of solidarity. Esau demonstrated love for Jacob, even loving his family and accepting the gifts of restitution that Jacob gave him. And so now in Genesis 36, we move on to the next Toledoth. The, these are the generations of, as we've seen, these, are the, the, these form the structure, the markers of the major sections of, of Genesis. And here it is. Seems like we've gotten off track. Jacob is the chosen line. And yet here is the unchosen line of Esau with 42 verses dedicated to his genealogy. And this is important because when Jacob and Esau were still in the womb, God told their mother, Rebekah, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And thus, Genesis 36 records the formation of the nation that would come from Esau, that is, the, the nation of Edom. And since we saw in the genealogies of the sons of Keturah, Abraham's second wife, and the genealogy of Ishmael, his illegitimate oldest son, we saw in them that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, given in Genesis 17, that nations would come from him. To a certain degree, we're not surprised that Esau is now forming the nation as well. But this, is, this has a totally different feel. This is emotionally charged there is a connection here that's, that's way deeper than the sons of Keturah, way deeper even than that of Ishmael, because the relationship of Isaac and Ishmael, for example, in the previous generation, was that they had the same father, but different mothers, and that was the same for the sons of Keturah and Isaac. But here, Jacob and Esau literally grew in the same womb. They were born at the same time from the same mother, born to the same parents, and that is as close and dear and special a relationship as you could have. So this is emotionally charged. In fact, even in the law of Moses, God makes a special concession to Esau. He makes a special concession to the Edomites. Deuteronomy 23, 7, God said, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. He is your brother. Well, let's look at this here together. First verse of Genesis 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Edom. The name of the nation from Esau, Edom. Uh, this isn't a complimentary name at all. Uh, you remember when Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright as the firstborn? Genesis 25, 30, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. In Hebrew, that red stuff. For I am exhausted, therefore his name is called Edom. Red stew, or red stuff, is the Hebrew word Adom, and therefore he is called Edom, Edom. And so he's named 
red stuff. And so this nation, if we could put it this way, is named after the time that Esau got tricked. So it's not a complimentary name. Verse 2, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elam, the Hittite, Aholibama, it's the funnest name in the whole Bible to say, by the way, Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Bezamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth, and Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Bezamath bore Ruel, and Aholibama bore Jewish, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now, this section here that identifies Esau's three wives and his five sons, this is the early phase of his family when they, they still lived uh, in Canaan before moving to, the, to the, the whole clan to Seir or Seir, S-E-I-R. Why did, why did Esau move to Seir? Well, apparently he and Jacob tried to live close to one another with their newly restored brotherhood, but the land couldn't support both of them. There's there too many of them and too many animals, uh, too many family members even for this nomadic lifestyle. Verse 6 continues the story. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. And again, we see God's protective hand over Edom. That even though Esau is not the chosen line from whom would come the chosen nation, from which would come the Savior, Edom is still from the line of Abraham. Because when God was giving Israel instructions about the land that they would take from the Canaanites, he made a stipulation. He made an exception. Deuteronomy 2 verse 5, Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. It's his. And Esau's move indicates settling into a national presence in one place. So, Hey, Gilbert, I wonder if we might ring a little less if we use the pulpit mic there. That's up to you. So now we see the development of the the nation of Edom. And this is is the hand of God. This This is now his work. And to make the emphasis that we ought to pay attention to Esau, and again, he seems like a seems like a, a, a an interruption here, but to make the emphasis that we should pay attention for the only time in Genesis. The subject of the Toledot, the these are the generations of, gets two in a row. And he's the unchosen line. Verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. And so now we get a, a brief political history of Edom in the form of four lists of people and places. And we won't read through all of it because you can read them for yourself. But the first list... In verses 10 through 19, we get a list of the, the chiefdoms that emerged from the descendants of Esau. The Hebrew word for chief is related to the word for 1,000, meaning that he was the leader of a large number, a large clan. This would be, uh, put it this way, fairly equivalent to a local lord or a landowner, or we might say a prince over a specific village or a group of villages. Verse 19 gives us the summary 
These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. And so all those chiefs are listed in verses 9 or 10 through 18. Then you have a second list in verses 20 through 30. This is the listing of another people, the Horites, the chiefs of the Horites who used to inhabit Seir, but ultimately Edom displaced them. And this land was God's gift to Edom. Deuteronomy 2 verse 12 says, The Horites also lived in Seir, Formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. And verse 22 of Deuteronomy 2 tells us who did this. And he, that is God, did it for the people of Esau who live in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. And so just because Esau was not the chosen line, uh, of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, it wasn't Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but just because he wasn't the chosen line didn't mean God didn't want to honor him and take care of him. He's still in the line of Abraham. Now, why are all these chiefs of the Horites listed? Well, they're listed to show that Edom displaced a powerful people, that they were given a land that was already a, an established kingdom. Edom was blessed by God to receive this land. And then we get a third list. This is an important list. And now this goes beyond chiefs, and we see a more unified nation of Edom with a list of eight Edomite kings in verses 31 through 39. Verse 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Now, what's the difference between a king and a chief? There are lots of chiefs and one king. That you might, and you might put it this way, to use a, a feudal system that there might be multiple dukes and barons, but there's only one king. And so now the kingdom has developed from a bunch of powerful chiefs to a unified kingdom under one king. There's a formula used in this list that indicates an unbroken dynasty, meaning that Edom was a consistent powerhouse in that region. The formula is so-and-so died, and then so-and-so reigned in his place. There were no breaks. It was a consistent dynasty. And so that's the third list. And then there's a fourth list, and that is the clans and the territories which made up the nation of Edom, verses 40 through 43. Essentially, this is a list of the regions, the geography, which becomes now this nation. So what is the emphasis here? The emphasis is that Esau, by the power of God, his descendants displaced the powerful Horites and they, they took their land. And, and we would say this may have even happened in the generation of Esau because it says that Esau took his family and went to Seir. There are eight great kings that would come from Esau. And the obvious theme in the chapter, if you, if you read every word, the obvious theme are the chiefs. That word is used 43 times in 42 verses. Verse 31 says significantly that the eight great kings all reigned before Israel ever had a king. Now, what is the kingdom challenge of meekness then, of humility? Well, while Esau is producing great chiefs and producing kings, conquering the Horites and building a nation and a dynasty, what's happening to his brother Jacob? Look at verse 37, chapter 37, rather, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. He's a sojourner. He owns no land. 
He has no great dynasty. In fact, while Esau is producing kings, Jacob is producing shepherds. When Jacob's son Joseph is in a position to, in Egypt to help his family during the famine, Joseph instructed his brothers what to say to Pharaoh when they got to meet him. Here's what they were to say as recorded in Genesis 46. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. And Joseph said this, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. It's the lowest of the low. And then while the descendants of Esau are conquering the nation, while they're making chiefs and kings and a dynasty, what's happening to Israel? The descendants of Jacob become great in number, and so the Pharaoh of Egypt takes steps to prevent Israel from becoming powerful. Exodus 1, 13 and 14 records, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. If I could put it this way, while the Edomites were going from sons to chiefs to kings, the sons of Jacob were going from sons to shepherds to slaves. They were going in the opposite direction. How meekly the kingdom of God on earth is getting started. Now the nation of Israel, hearing Moses relate this story as they get ready to take their land in Deuteronomy, they can never look back and say how great and mighty the start of our nation was. In fact, with heads hung down, they may say, boy, Esau really had it together. And what happened to Jacob? The prophecy given to Rebekah was that of Jacob and Esau, that one would be stronger. And right now it looks like that's Esau, the non-chosen line of Abraham and Isaac. I think this is a really timely reminder as I studied this. It reminded me of my own salvation that I can't ever look back. You can't ever look back and pat yourself on the back for such a glorious start to your faith in Christ. You can't ever do that. Your spiritual walk with the Lord is littered with sin and rebellion and humiliation. You came to Christ on your knees. You came to Christ with blood and with sweat. You came to Christ in degradation. Now, someday the Bible promises you will reign with the Lord, but that's not where you started, and that's not where we are now. Meekness is our place. Meekness is our theme. Meekness is our life, and it is a challenge. There's a second challenge to the kingdom. We'll call this the challenge of conflict. The challenge of conflict. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. And we get to look a little bit ahead in the Pentateuch here. After the rescue of Israel from Egyptian slavery, Moses sent messengers from the city of Kadesh where Israel was camped outside the city. And Numbers 20 records that these messengers were sent to the now strong and mighty nation of Edom. And Moses sent word to the king. Numbers 20, starting in verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. 
And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway. And if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army, with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. And this began what would be a thousand years of bad relations between Israel and Edom. A millennia, a millennium. During the reign of King David, he waged a campaign against Edom. 2 Samuel 8 records, and David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This was, a, this was a devastating defeat, but it went further than that. Joab, David's commander, took it infinitely further. He attempted to kill every single Edomite male and to end them as a nation. First Kings 11 records, For when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, <clears throat> he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. The only survivor we know of is a little boy named Hadad who escaped to Egypt. Eventually would likely come back. But the decimation of nearly all the male population of Edom ensured that, that Edom would hate Israel. Absolutely hate them. And particularly when Israel split the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of, of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah was right on the border of Edom. And so now there were all kinds of tensions, especially since the Israelites kept an occupation force in Edom for 150 years. The Edomites were a vassal servant nation, likely paying tributes to the Israelites, paying tribute to them rather. And over time, though, the Edomite population began to grow once again. They began to grow from within. And finally, Edom revolted. They revolted against the rule of Judah as recorded in 2 Kings 8. And as Judah declined over the next two centuries, Edom prospered. And, and you can imagine this, they itched to get back at Judah. In the 8th century B.C., Edom had their chance. They had their opportunity. The reign of King Ahaz of Judah was suffering. Ahaz was one of the kings of Judah during the ministry of Isaiah, by the way. And it's no wonder Ahaz was suffering. 2 Kings 16.2 says he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Verse 3, he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Ahaz was in trouble. He was being attacked by the Assyrians and by the northern kingdom of Israel at the same time. They even put Jerusalem under siege for a period of time. And, and while this was happening, while all this distraction was happening, the Edomites took the city of Elath from Judah and made it part of their nation. 
and, and they kept it. In 2 Chronicles 28, 16-18 records that Edom also took captives from Judah. They, they took slaves. They, they captured people as well as defeating Judah in battle. And so in desperation, King Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, requesting assistance. And boy, did Assyria come to, come to their aid. Instead of helping them, they took the massive payment that Ahaz sent and came and battled against Judah. Edom had captured the city of Elath. Assyria said, you can keep it. The city of Elath was extremely important because it was on a major trade route between Arabia and Syria through the Gulf of Aqaba. And thus, what happened in that area? Edomites started flooding in to the southern regions of Judah for two centuries, essentially almost taking over that whole area. And ultimately, to the Jews in Judah, Edom now became a symbol they became the representation and the icon of Gentile oppression, Gentile destruction. And when Judah finally fell, when Jerusalem finally fell to the Babylonians, the Edomites rejoiced. They loved it. In fact, Psalm 137, the psalmist prays for God's judgment on Edom. Psalm 137, verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. And the idea here is the Edomites on the outskirts of Judah watching the decimation of the Babylonians coming against Jerusalem and cheering and having a picnic and having a party and watching with glee at the, the destruction and the killing of all those in Jerusalem. Edom was a tough nut to crack. They continued to survive even under Babylonian and then the Persian rule of the region. And by the 4th century, they sort of rebranded themselves. They had a new regional identity called Idumea. In the 2nd century, under the Hasmonean kings, the Jews regained some power in the region and they forced all the Idumeans, the, the Edomites living in the area, to convert to Judaism. And you think, well, that, that might be a step in the right direction. Not necessarily. What you had now was a whole bunch of Edomites who were Jews in name only, but not in faith. You had a bunch of false converts. But once again, Edom would have its revenge. With the rise of the Roman Empire and the takeover of the province of Judea, which used to be Judah, the Romans appointed a client king, a king who would rule harshly, on Rome's behalf, supposedly as a Jew, and his name was Herod the Great, the Idumean, the Edomite. This is the same Herod of the newly formed Herodian dynasty who would murder the baby boys of Bethlehem in his quest to kill the newborn Jesus Christ. I think it's important to remind ourselves of how Jacob and Esau ended their relationship. Turn back with me to Genesis 33, and I know we looked at this last week, but this is just so touching and so poignant. Genesis 33, put yourself in the sandals of Jacob and Esau. You have had massive strife between you. Jacob has stolen the birthright of Esau. Esau has threatened to murder Jacob. And as life progressed, the Lord changed both of their hearts. Jacob came home to face Esau, even fearing for his own life. Genesis 33, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. 
And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And instead of Esau hating Jacob, they were reconciled. They were at peace. And they would come together at least one more time. Look with me at the end of chapter 35. Very last verse, verse 29. They would come together for a funeral. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Did you notice something? That even though Jacob is the chosen line, and though he stole by deception the birthright of Esau, the biblical author lists Esau as the firstborn. They are reconciled. They are at peace. Their relationship is restored. I can only imagine Jacob and Esau observing the subsequent history of their families if they were able to do that, seeing the invasions and the wars, and ultimately a descendant of Esau, Herod, attempting to murder the chosen seed, the descendant of Jacob, the Messiah from Israel. I mean, how would you feel if your children grew up and you saw that a few generations later they were literally murdering each other? It would be heartbreaking. When Joab, the commander of David's army, conquered Edom, he didn't have to murder every Edomite male he could find. When Herod, the Idumean king of Judea, was jealous of the birth of Jesus, he didn't have to murder all the little boys of Bethlehem. How rife and widespread in this family was the conflict that literally went on for a thousand years. Listen, we have trouble reconciling relationships that have been bad for a year. How about for a thousand years, or if we take the whole history, 1,800 years? Thus, there would be consequences, very sad, sad consequences, and that's the third challenge to the kingdom. We'll call this the challenge of sadness. The challenge of sadness. Turn with me to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. The first section of Ezekiel 34 speaks against the false shepherds, the kings and leaders of Israel who led their people into sin and idolatry. And the Lord promises to rescue Israel from these false shepherds. How will God ultimately do this? Ezekiel 34, look with me at verse 22. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. God will send a king descended from David. This, of course, speaks of the coming reign of Messiah on earth. And the rest of chapter 34 describes the changed world under Messiah's reign, under his new rule. No longer is there enmity between animals and mankind. You see massive agricultural production, massive wealth. You see Israel completely freed from the oppression of surrounding nations. Look with me at verse 30. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep. Human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. But what will Messiah do to Edom, either before or at his coming? 
chapter 35. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood. And blood shall pursue you, because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go. And I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your cities shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you said... These two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will take possession of them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and the envy that you showed because of your hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I judge you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given us to devour And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. Thus says the Lord God, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you. You shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Know this, by the way. The Edom is judged because of how she treated Israel. See also the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25. The entire book of Obadiah is devoted to the judgment of Edom, with Edom really becoming the representation of how nations who reject the Lord will be treated. But we get even more detail into the future desolation of Edom in Isaiah. Turn back with me to Isaiah 34, back a few books. Isaiah 34, what will specifically come to Edom? We walked through this a couple of years ago in Isaiah. And I'd like to review this for a moment. What comes to Edom in Isaiah 34? And goodness, do we get detail. Isaiah 34, verse 5. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction, the Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Verse 6, the Lord has a sword. This is a clear language of sacrifice. This is the graphic picture of the Lord's sword dripping with blood. In the sacrificial system, the blood and the fat were exclusively reserved for the Lord. Leviticus 3, Leviticus 7 says this. And in these verses, the animals here, the goats, the rams, the oxen, the young steers, the mighty bulls, 
these are symbols of the people who have come against the Lord. How do we know that these are symbols of the people? Because the end of verse 5 says, the people I have devoted to destruction. And so the animals here are representative, representative of the people. The picture is very clear. In the Old Testament law, for the faithful Jew, animal sacrifices were made symbolizing the true atonement that would come through Christ. But here, the people are sacrificed for their own sin. There is no substitute available. They must personally pay the price. Everyone from the lowest of society, the lambs and the goats, to the highest of society, the mighty bulls. God's judgment is extremely personal. This is the sword of the Lord. You don't kill with a sword from a distance. Symbolically, the sacrifices are looking into the eyes of the one who is running them through. This is the long memory of the Lord on Israel's behalf. Verse 8, for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And Isaiah even describes what the land itself will be like when God is done. Verse 9, and the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. This evokes memories of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis 19. Edom is south of the Dead Sea, probably in the same area that Sodom and Gomorrah would have been, where pitch and sulfur deposits are found in abundance. The land will be set fire with these naturally occurring elements. By the way, verse 6 says that the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. That is modern-day Busera in the country of Jordan, 27 miles south of the Dead Sea. So when Christ returns to conquer, you don't want to be in Jordan because that's the ancestral home of the Edomites. And God is taking it out. He's taking it out. Amos 1, 11 and 12 says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. And what this confirms is that Edom as a nation antagonized Israel for a thousand years, from the time of Moses all the way to the time of the Babylonian invasion. From our standpoint, many of Edom's sins happened 3,500 years ago. And yet God still remembers and he's still intent on bringing judgment. Remember, Isaiah 34 hasn't happened yet. God's memory is terrifying. He never forgets. He never forgets. In the rest of the chapter, Isaiah describes the desolation of this specific area. Verse 10 Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall, be, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. 
Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. This is a picture of the disappearance of humanity on a section of earth. And now the appearing of animals to come live in the places and the the places where the people were and the, the nobles were and in the courtyards. Verse 12, there's no more royalty, no more nobles, no one to be proud of, no identity at all. It's a thing of the past. This is a picture of a sinister place, a place of darkness and fear and horror. Verse 11 says he shall stretch the line of confusion over it, the plumb line of emptiness. Verse 17, with the line they shall possess it forever. What, what is this line? These are surveying terms. These are boundaries. These are markers that God has taken ownership. He surveyed the land and determined to make it the haunt of emptiness. And then we get pictures from the plant world the animal world, and the supernatural world. We get pictures from the plant world. Verse 13 says, Thorns shall grow over its thresholds, strongholds. You ever step on one of those grassy thorns that goes all the way up to your spleen and you just feel like you just got run through with a sword? They're everywhere. Nettles and thistles in its fortresses. If you've ever brushed up against a stinging nettle, you have the experience of the initial pain of formic acid followed by three other chemicals which cause burning pain for hours. All the places, all the fortresses that were supposed to keep out enemies are now deserted. There's no defenders left. And now the citadels are being attacked by thorns and nettles and thistles, and the thorns, nettles, and thistles have won. You see this dark picture of the animal world. You have the hawks. This is a dangerous predatory bird that builds ugly, crude nests in the Dead Sea region. Even today, the Mosaic Law declared them unclean. You have the the porcupines. We don't have to explain that. We know what those are. They're also known as hedgehogs. It doesn't need a description. They're nocturnal. They live in hollow stumps in rocky crevices, and they like to live in devastated cities. You have the owls. They're nocturnal predators among the unclean birds of the law of Moses. And owls, for us, even in our culture, pictures a scary nighttime. You have the the ravens here. The hawks and the ravens and and all these birds. The the ravens, the brown-necked raven is found only in the Jordan Valley. They'll eat anything alive, anything dead. It is the haunt of jackals. Jackals are a nocturnal, carnivorous, wolf-like animal. They can go into packs up to 200. They howl and they wail and they're attracted by dead bodies. In fact, in the Bible, a jackal is a major picture of desolation and desert-like conditions. It's called the abode of ostriches. This large, swift, running bird is also unclean in the law. They make a mournful cry that in Micah 1.8 says is an example of sorrow and sadness. In fact, to the Hebrews, the ostrich was a symbol of stupidity because the females would leave their eggs in the sand and then step on them. And then you have the the hyenas. The hyenas are the nocturnal carrion eaters. In Scripture, the hyena is associated strongly with abandonment and desolation. These are almost all nocturnal animals. They're all unclean in the law of Moses, They're symbolic of darkness and dread, 
This isn't exactly the lineup that you would want to take your children to, to a petting zoo, right? Let's go see the hyenas and the jackals so they can bite your hand off. This is a bleak place. Not only the plant world and the animal world, the supernatural world is at play here. The night bird, verse 14, in Babylonian literature, the night bird speaks of demons which come out at night. It's said in Jewish thought that the night birds are female demons, sometimes called night hags, that terrified people in the middle of the night. You have also in verse 14 the wild goat. This is the mythology of the goat demons, similar to the night birds in terror. In fact, we know from Revelation 9 that demonic activity near the end of the Great Tribulation is going to be blown wide open. What used to be strongholds and citadels of Edom now is only good for thorns, creepy animals, and demons. God promised Abraham in Genesis 17.4 that he would be the father of a multitude of nations, and yet it seems that the nation that descended from Esau utterly failed. The nation that God himself said in Deuteronomy 23.7, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother, and now God will decimate them. The sin that entered the world in the Garden of Eden, the sin which pitted Cain against Abel, which pitted Jacob against Esau, now has pitted God against Edom. I imagine that both Jacob and Esau would have wept bitterly had they been able to see their subsequent rivalry, the relationship between their families. And so the the kingdom of God on earth suffers from the challenge of sadness. There's a final challenge to the kingdom. We'll call it the challenge of hope. The challenge of hope. Will God's plan for the nations really come through? Can the desolation of Ezekiel 35 and Isaiah 34, can that ever be recovered? Is the pronouncement of God's judgment on Edom as a nation, is it irrevocable? Is it never going to be changed? The book of Malachi rather starts off by seeming to say no. This is the beginning of Malachi. You don't have to turn there, but the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may, be, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is a challenge. The challenge of hope compels us to look beyond history, to look beyond what we know, to look beyond what we can see into the heavenly blueprints of God's future kingdom on earth, to look beyond what we are able to see and look instead to what God has already ordained. So what do we know and what must we believe? Well, first, we know what God promised to Abraham. Genesis 17, 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God also promised Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so by sight, we see that God is going to utterly destroy Edom with these, these poignant, detailed descriptions of their destruction. 
And by faith, we see that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. And this must be the case because the book of Revelation shows us that believers are in heaven right now at this moment from every tribe, every tongue, and every what? Nation. Every single one. So to put it all together, we need to visit the key to understanding the end point of God's redemptive history and really one of the keys to understanding God's kingdom plan, understanding the Old Testament. Turn with me to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. You're probably not in Amos super often. So it is right before Obadiah, which is only one page long, so that doesn't give you much help. And right after Joel... Amos 9, chapter 9 is the last chapter in Amos. God promised Abraham a perpetual chosen nation, Israel, the one through whom Messiah would come, the capital nation of the earth. Amos 9, verse 13. Amos 9, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. This is a description of the coming kingdom of Christ on earth, these days of great abundance and great wealth and prosperity. And God's love for Israel, which has never waned, is very clearly seen now in verse 14. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. That's the end point of the whole Old Testament, by the way. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And remembering that God promised Abraham and his people that they would inhabit a specific land. Genesis 17, 8 says, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And remembering that these boundaries are extremely specific and very big. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. You know what that is? That's all of the Middle East. Belongs to Israel. It's theirs by right. And so the Lord will restore the Davidic kingship through Christ. And through this restoration, not only is God going to restore Israel, but he'll restore nations that are God-fearing nations, worshipers of the true living God. So let's look at the, the restoration of David. Verse 11, In that day I will raise up the booth of David, David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. This is the messianic kingdom come to earth. Why? Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and look what they're called. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Edom is included as one of the nations called by the name of God. The remnant of Edomites saved by the work of Christ on the cross. Jacob and Esau at peace at last. Now, how does the desolation of Ezekiel 35 and Isaiah 34 fit in with this restoration of Edom? I don't know. It's not my responsibility to figure it out. 
I just know that God can destroy and he can rebuild. And that seems to be his plan. And you might ask, well, where are these remnants of Edomites coming from? Where do they come from? Obviously, there's no nation of Edom, not even today. Well, Mark 3 records great crowds following Christ and hearing the gospel of salvation from sin preached. Mark 3, 7 and 8, Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. Edomites following after Christ, hearing the gospel. And in fact, while the Edomites at one time became the symbol of the hated Gentiles, now Edom in the early church, you ready for this? They'll become the symbol of saved Gentiles. In Acts 15, James is going to cite Amos 9, 11, and 12, but he refers to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which speaks of the Gentiles in general, where the original reference in Amos 9 speaks of the Edomites. And so he replaces Edomites with the Gentiles. And what's the context of Acts 15? The Jewish apostles are affirming that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just given to the Jews, but to all people, including, by James's quote of Amos 9, 10, 11 and 12, including the Edomites. So where are the Edomites coming from? Where is this remnant originating? Quite simply, those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the genealogy in Genesis 36 is not placed here as an interruption. It is not a slap in the face of Israel, but because a remnant from them will appear once again among the redeemed. And for us in our little bitty lightning quick lives, which includes so much pain and suffering and wondering if God's promises to the believer in Christ will ever be satisfied and fully brought to fruition. For me, the story of the Edomites is really the ultimate story of the long shot. Coming into the kingdom, and it gives me hope, it gives you hope, that we can believe the Lord Jesus Christ when he promised, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so in the meantime, by faith we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it shall be done. It shall be done to the praise and glory of God. If God can save the Edomites, he can save you. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for the hope given to us in Genesis 36, a simple genealogy. And yet through it, Lord, we are encouraged to know that there is no sinner that is beyond grace. There is no sinner who has outsinned the mercy of God. And the cross is sufficient for all who would come by faith to Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fact that you show time and time again that history will never outrun your plan, that the galloping stallion of the passage of time will not outrun your sovereign will, that in fact you are riding that stallion and you are directing it exactly where you would have it to go. And when history seems to point us to hopelessness when we even in our age see the desecration of all things godly 
when we see those in our government and those in power mocking God, those who would decry life by demanding the right to kill unborn children, those who would demand their so-called right to be something that God did not create them to be. When all things that are right and good seem to be turned upside down and redefined as wrong and wicked, and when all things that are wrong and wicked are now elevated as those things that are right and good, we have courage because we know you will make all things right. You will restore your kingdom. You will bring to fruition our salvation, our little itty-bitty lives will be part of that great, magnificent plan. And we give you honor and praise. And we are so filled with gratitude for your sovereign plan and for including us through Christ, through the cross. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.